Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to uh, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. This is a familiar passage, I believe, to many of you, uh, the story of the woman at the well. Um, But I'd like to take a uh, little different approach to it. Uh, You invite a missionary to uh, preach at your church, guess what he's going to preach on? Uh, Missions. Uh, I was trying to find the, uh, the illustration about a carpenter and a, and a nail or something. Every, every problem is a nail or every solution is a hammer or something like that. Well, to a missionary, um, every biblical text is probably a missions text. So, um, so but my question is, just uh, to begin with, is what is missions? When you, when you think about missions, how do you define it? Um, how do you know when you're actually doing it? I did an internet search on missions, looking for a simple definition for missions. Came up with all kinds of things, all these different complicated definitions that talk about evangelism and uh, crossing boundaries from one culture to another. I like to keep things rather simple, uh, so I made my own definition. So missions is simply personal evangelism across cultures. Personal evangelism across cultures. And obviously, there's a lot of verses that we could look at uh, to talk about missions. The, the go-to text would be uh, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the, the Great Commission. Um, but I don't want to approach the topic of missions as though it's <clears throat> an obligation, as though it's something that you, you must do, as though you were... Um, as though it becomes just one more thing that you have to do. Um, I think if, if that's our approach to missions, <clears throat> we won't do it very well, we won't do it for very long, and we'll, be, we'll do it sort of grudgingly. Um, and that should never be the case. Instead, I'd like to take this passage, <clears throat> because I believe that it has something to teach us about missions. Um, I believe we can gain a better understanding of missions as we actually see it in progress, see it unfold before us, and as we listen in as Jesus instructs his disciples about their own future mission work. So, let me give you a quick uh, word about the structure of this narrative. Um, We're only going to look at the second half of it, so basically from verses uh, 27 to 42. And the section, uh, this narrative breaks easily into three sections. The first section deals with uh, the Samaritan woman, uh, verses 27 to 30. The second section, we see Jesus with his disciples. And the last section, at center focus, is the Samaritan people. So before we read, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us this narrative in your scripture Thank you for your son and for what he did uh, for this Samaritan woman and for what she did by your power and grace in the town of Samaria. Father, in eternity to come, we will meet the people about whom we're reading. So, Father, open up our hearts and our minds to see your word, to hear it, to embrace it, and to apply it. We ask this, Father, in the name of your son. Amen. John chapter 4, beginning with verse 27. 
Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, so while all that's happening, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. When I uh, returned to the United States after... Uh, doing three years of collegiate ministry with the navigators in Moscow, Russia. This was in the early 90s, shortly after the the wall had come down. I came to CIU for seminary. Uh, My plan was to to take a couple of courses, uh, get some things under my belt during my home assignment, and then return immediately back to the field. But I soon found out that I had to take a series of prerequisite courses uh, in order to begin studying the material that I really wanted to study. You see, I, I had to do that before I could do this. And um, as we look at this first section, we find several prerequisites to missions. Now, if, you, if you're interested at all in missions, keep in mind there are some prerequisites. And the first one we see is that of a changed heart. Um, Look at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So the first prerequisite is out of a changed heart, and we see that in the Samaritan woman. Um, Actually, This is the very first example we have in John's Gospel of someone who has actually come to Christ. Uh, You might think that uh, Nicodemus in chapter 3 is the first. Well, if you read the text very carefully, there's no indication that Nicodemus has come to understand who Jesus is. We see that towards the end of John's Gospel, clearly, absolutely, but not at the end of chapter 3. 
In chapter 4, we have the Samaritan woman, and there's our first example of someone who's experienced a changed heart. What else do we know about her? We know that she came to the well in the middle of the day. Why? Well, to avoid contact. Uh, the middle of the day was not the day to draw water. Uh, people drew water early, first thing. Uh, and they usually came together. The women would gather together for protection, for company, um, and that's when they would gather weather. But not at the middle of the day, not at the hottest part of the day. No, you only do that in case you're trying to avoid contact with other people. We know that she had a problem with men. She had had five previous, previous husbands, and the one she was currently living with was not her husband. Um, back in those days, if you had had three husbands, for whatever reason, legitimate or otherwise, uh, that was considered quite unusual. But five? I imagine this woman had simply by then given up, given up hope she would ever meet someone who would meet her needs. So we knew she had a problem with men. We also know that she was thirsty. Jesus talked about living water, and this woman responds favorably. favorably. Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She desperately wanted what Jesus was offering. Now, she misunderstood exactly the nature of that, but you can see she responded positively. She was thirsty. We also know that she was expecting the Messiah to come, the one who would tell her all things. When Jesus told her, I who speak to you am he, she believed, because she immediately went into town and told everyone, come see a man who, did, who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? <clears throat> her question, don't understand her question as a question of doubt. Can this be the Christ? It's actually much stronger than that in the original language. It's like saying, this couldn't be the Christ, could it? It's really more of an invitation. So without a changed heart, without a heart that's been touched by the gospel, missions will be nothing to us because, really, we haven't got anything to share. So that's the first prerequisite, a changed heart. The next prerequisite is changed values. John tells us that the woman left her water jar and went away into town. Now, if you take that little phrase out of the text, the text reads perfectly fine. This little detail is superfluous. I always trip up saying that word. Uh, This little detail is not necessary. Uh, it, It doesn't change the text in any way. It reads perfectly fine without it. So why does he include it? The water she had come to draw from the well was no longer important to her. There was something now so much greater in her life that it completely obscured her previous need. So we see a changed value in the woman. The last prerequisite that we find in this passage is the willingness to cross boundaries. Now, the woman went directly into town um, and told everyone, come see a man. I would like you to imagine for a minute uh, what it must have been like for her to do this. Now, remember who she is. Remember the life that she's lived. Everybody knows this woman. 
Everybody knows everything about this woman. Sychar was a small town. She had a reputation. And yet, none of that mattered. What compelled her to do that? What, what drove her to face the potential shame and ridicule of all the people that she knew in that town? I think that if it was merely a sense of duty or obligation, she would never have gone back to the town. No, this was something much bigger. Um, this was something that she had to do. She was compelled to do it. Uh, let me give you this <clears throat> illustration. When uh, In the Navy, I was uh, stationed in Hawaii for six years. Yeah, I know, it's hard duty. Uh, somebody's got to do it, right? Tip of the spear. <clears throat> so, uh, and, and I was single for a long time. And um, I would do my day job, flying, whatever it was, go back, change. I often would go back down, and there was one place on the, the western tip of Oahu where I would go and just sit on the rocks and watch these glorious sunsets. And as a single guy who wanted to be married, I often lamented that I didn't have anyone to share this with. Um, Why? Because that's what you do. You see something beautiful. You see something extraordinary. And what do you do? You, You look for someone close by to share it with. You want to share the experience. We're just built that way. And I think that's what happened to this woman. She found something beautiful. Jesus had unmasked her sinfulness. The thing she most desperately wanted to hide and cover, Jesus had uncovered and exposed. And so she had no place to hide, and yet Jesus didn't push her away. He didn't say, Go clean yourself up. I'll come back in a year or so and see how you're doing and then give you some of this water. No. He told her, come and drink. Jesus continues to offer her living water. She was fully known and still accepted. And this was something that she simply had to share. There was no way you could have stopped her from sharing. And so it is with us. I think uh, as we think about missions today, hopefully, and every day hereafter, unless our hearts have been truly changed by the gospel of grace, and unless our values have been altered to reflect kingdom values, concern for the lost, love for Jesus, desire to join him in his work, then missions for us will simply remain something we have to do or something that we ought to do. And so we walk around with a guilty conscience because we're not doing it enough. Or it becomes just one more thing added to a long list of Christian obligations and duties. It will never become the overriding passion, the priority of our lives, as it was for Jesus. Now, that brings us to the second point, the priority of missions for Jesus. Take a look at verse 31. Meanwhile, so picture in your mind the woman has just left Jesus. The disciples have just come back. They're seeing Jesus with the woman. They see the exchange, but they don't hear it. And they see the woman leave her water jar, and immediately she runs right past them down to the same village from which the disciples had just come. Okay? So meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. 
But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. John gives us a contrast here between the disciples' priorities and those of Jesus. Jesus' food is to do the will of the Father who sent him, to accomplish his work. The disciples, on the other hand, were concerned only with their physical needs. They demonstrated no more understanding about Jesus and his mission than did the woman at the well initially. Jesus spoke to her about living water, and she thought only about physical water being drawn from a well. Jesus spoke to his disciples about food, and they only thought about what one puts in their mouth. Jesus said, my food, okay, that which sustains, that which, that which nourishes, is to do the will of God and to accomplish his work. The thing that satisfied Jesus was actually doing the will of God. Now, theologians will make a distinction when talking about the will of God, okay? There's this secret will, all right, this refers to God's decrees, uh, the things that are unknown to us. This is the Deuteronomy 29, 29 verse. The secret things belong to the Lord. But they'll also talk about God's revealed will, those things he's already made known to us in his word, the things in which he delights, the things which are pleasing to him, okay? When we're talking about, when John is talking about uh, Jesus saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, he's talking about the second will, the revealed will, those things that are pleasing to God, those things that, which delight God, which give him pleasure. In the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, your will be done as it is on earth, as it is in heaven, this is what we're asking him. We're asking him for those things in which he delights, which pleases him, which are according to his word. Those things, that those things might be done on earth as they are done in heaven. So Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is what satisfies Jesus. It preoccupies his attention. It consumes his thoughts. It is what he always does. Now, I'm sure you've experienced this. You're, um, a couple of years ago, I started, uh, Victoria gave me some painting lessons, some oil painting lessons, and so I started dabbling in oil painting. And I found that I could, I could sit at an easel and just paint for hours and I would lose all track of time. And I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. You're so busy uh, being engaged or just absorbed in, in some particular activity that you forget about everything else for a time. For Jesus, doing what was pleasing to God, what was according to his word, was that very thing. It satisfied him more than physical food ever could. And dear friends, how unlike us, how unlike Jesus are we? If we're truly honest with ourselves, we'd have to confess that most of the time what preoccupies us is not God's will, not the things that please him, but our own will, our own comforts, our own pleasures, the things that contribute to the illusion of our own security and well-being. But it's not that way with Jesus. 
In the following chapter, chapter 5, verse 30, we hear Jesus say, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then in the following chapter after that, John 6, verse 40, Jesus explains exactly what the will of God is. For this is the will of my Father. Here it is. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This was Jesus' priority. Now, to help his disciples understand that, to understand why this was so important to him, he speaks about the harvest. And he does so using two common to that day sayings. And the first is in verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, lift up your eyes and look at the fields and see that they are white for harvest. Now, <clears throat> if you look into a commentary, most commentators will, will argue that uh, what Jesus is doing is uh, he most likely could see the, the crowd in Samaria filing out of the town, and in the afternoon sun, their, their clothes shone brightly like, like white. Um, Sychar and, and, the, and Jacob's well was really only about half a mile uh, on an elevated place. So as you look out, you could actually see the people filing out of the town, making their way up this path towards the well. And that's certainly possible. That's one explanation. But I think the point here is that the time of the great ingathering of souls was no longer in the future. It is something that's happening now, right now. Jesus goes on in verse 36, already, that's the key, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Okay, already, that's the key. It's what the disciples needed to understand. Sowing is no longer only a time of expectant waiting. Uh, If you've ever planted anything, you put seed in the ground, you water it. Do you expect it to grow that afternoon? Do you expect it to reap the next day? No, of course not. There's this long period of of agonizing waiting, hoping that it's going to produce something. Jesus is saying the planting and the harvesting now coincide. This is exactly what the prophet Amos had foretold. In Amos 9, verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. Those days have come. They are right now. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. But he uses a second saying as well, and that's in verse 37. For here the saying holds two, one sows and another reaps. Now, originally, this was an expression of disappointment. One sows and another reaps. It's like saying, you do the work, someone else is going to reap the benefit. How encouraging is that, right? But Jesus is saying, no, this saying is still true, only he turns it around. It's now their privilege as those involved in his work to live in a time when the harvest has begun and, and to reap what they themselves did not sow. 
Jesus wants his disciples to grasp. He wants them to understand, to be aware that they are being allowed to participate in the time of fulfillment. It has come. It is now. And they get the privilege of being part of that. So let's be very clear. Jesus is speaking about the time in salvation history when the great harvest of souls has already begun. Fruit for our eternal life is already being gathered. And you and I are part of that. It doesn't mean that every mission field uh, is going to be simply a matter of reaping. There are plenty of fields out there uh, that are hard. The ground is hard. And the seed has no place. And it takes years of laboring. Some fields simply require long, faithful service. But even those hard fields still fall within this period of salvation history where the gospel goes forth and does not return void without accomplishing that for which God sent it. So there is great hope, even for the hard fields. So Jesus now speaks directly to his disciples, and you can just imagine him calling them in and looking at them right in the face and saying, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And I think he's speaking about the Samaritan woman. She's the one who's labored. She's the one who went out and told the town. And now they're coming. And you, my disciples, are going to enter into her labor. Now, the disciples don't fully understand this. Uh, If they had they would have brought out of the town far more than just bread. They were just there. Jesus sent them into town to buy bread. Did they talk with anyone while they were there? Did they say, by the way, the Messiah, the one who is to come, sent us. Come, I'll introduce you to him. No! They bought their bread and they got out of there as quickly as possible. I don't think they talked to anybody. Same town. Minutes later, the Samaritan woman goes in and says, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. This couldn't be the Christ, can it? And the entire town empties and follows her back. You know, um, unless we're too hard on the disciples, they didn't get it, and I think we don't get it either. Um, we have a hard time understanding that we're sent. Um, if you've ever traveled abroad, if you've ever, has anyone ever done a short-term missions trip? Yeah, some of you had. Um, what do you do on that short-term missions trip? You willingly, gladly endure and put up with deprivations, uncomfortable settings, surroundings, weird food, right? You put up with all that stuff. Why? Because you're on a mission trip, right? You know it's temporary. This will be over soon, right? Friends, imagine if we regarded our entire lives, 70 to 80 years, as our mission trip. It'll be over soon, sooner than we realize. We can put up with discomfort. We can hang out with awkward people. We can eat weird food. 
We can endure discomfort. Why? Because we're on a missions trip. And pretty soon, it'll be over, and we go home. Do you think that would change the way we interact with people, our neighbors, the people we rub shoulders with day after day, week after week? Does that change the way you look at missions? Well, praise God for our substitute. Jesus is the true Son of God who lived out the obedience that was really ours, that was expected from us, but we failed. The disciples, too, were supposed to live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Their food was to do the will of God, his revealed will, according to his word, but they couldn't, and they failed. So Jesus came and lived that perfect obedience, always doing that which is pleasing to his Father. So we've seen the prerequisites for missions. We've seen the priority for missions. Now as we wrap up, Let's take a look at the process of missions. This is where you see it unfold. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The confession of the Samaritan people, that they now know who Jesus is, that he is indeed the Savior of the world, is the climax of this narrative for John. It's the note upon which John ends the story of the woman at the well, and she just as quickly disappears from the pages of Scripture. We never hear from her again. But notice how the Samaritans came to this conclusion. This is the important part for us. They heard the woman's testimony. And either because of it or because of her reputation, and she had a reputation, they believed her. They believed her word, so they left the village and they went to go and see Jesus. They asked Jesus to remain with them and they spend time together. In verse 41, We read, many more believed because of his word. And notice, as far as we know, Jesus did not perform a single miracle, did not perform a single healing, no miraculous signs, nothing. He just spent time with them. He spoke to them. They said, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed or truly the Savior of the world. It was because of his word. This, friends, is the process of missions. Our testimony to a watching world of what Jesus has done in our lives is vastly important, and your testimony is unique to you. Nobody has the same testimony. Do you think there's someone out there whom, for whom your testimony is designed to be the answer for what they're looking for? You bet. I believe that. God, so God uses it. God uses our testimony, and each one of us has a unique one. But ultimately, 
The people around us, the lost, need to hear his words for themselves. And it's our great privilege to help them, to help that take place by doing what this Samaritan woman did, by extending the invitation to those around us and to perform uh, to those from other cultures to say simply, come and see. Come and see. And then somehow, some way, get them into his word to hear his word for themselves. So let me ask you, what does missions mean for you personally? Do you meet the prerequisites for mission involvement? I think you do. Changed heart, changed values, willingness to cross boundaries, cross cultures? Do you understand the priority of missions? That this is the revealed will of God. This is what delights him. This is what pleases him. It gives him pleasure. Will you actively take part in the process of missions by extending the invitation to the nations around you to come and see so that they might hear the word of God speaking directly to them? Oh, may God give us the grace to answer, yes, Lord, here I am. Please send me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for opening our eyes to the truth of the gospel, for bringing along a friend who invited us to come and see. Oh, Lord, would you take us? Would you make us available? Would you open our eyes to see the nations around us, the people who do not know you, who are lost, who are thirsty, looking for answers. They don't know it, but they are ultimately looking for you. Lord, would you give us the boldness? Help us to cast, us, help us to cast our reputations, the concern for ourselves aside, and to simply say, can this be the Christ? Come and see. Father, we ask you for that grace. In the name of Jesus, your son, we pray it. Amen.